I just want to give you a warning that the story I'm about to share is not fair. It's true, but it's not fair. One night after having an argument with his girlfriend about his conviction that marriage was just an institution that he wanted no part of, Mike is driving home frustrated. He's frustrated that his girlfriend is insistent about having this little piece of paper that proves he loves her and is committed to her. And about halfway home, lost in his frustration, out of nowhere, he's T-boned by a drunk driver who ran a red light. The drunk driver then quickly attempts to leave the scene, but in his drunken stupor crashes into a nearby light pole. Mike's okay, but as he sits in shock on the side of the road, he's thinking to himself, if that man would have hit me one second later, I would be dead right now. Mike is thankful he's alive, and he's also thankful that justice will be served. An officer at the scene asks him at the the curb to sign the accident report. And Mike's kind of dazed and confused. And he says, "What, what is it that I'm signing? And the officer says to him, just sign it. It says it's not your fault. So Mike signs. About two weeks later, Mike receives a notice from the other driver's lawyer stating that Mike is responsible for paying $12,000 to repair the other driver's car. Now Mike's confused. So he does some research. He requests a copy of of the accident report that he signed. And the report is filled with all of these inaccuracies, including the statement that vehicle one, Mike's car, hit person one, Mike, at the center of the intersection. That's probably just a rookie officer mistake. So Mike attempts to contact the police officer who completed the report. And after two months of daily pursuit, Mike finally gets the officer on the phone, hoping to clear things up, clear up this confusion. And the officer hears Mike and then finally has it with him and responds in frustration. Do the right thing, dude, and pay for the guy's car. Mike is now angry. He pursues lawyers who refuse to take the case because it's just small peanuts. And Mike decides he's going to take the law into his own hands. And he subscribes to an online private investigation website to track down the guy who hit him. He finds out, he pays money to learn the guy's name, his address, his date of birth. And he looks for more dirt on this guy to prove that he's shady. He's up till three or four in the morning combing the accident report over and over again to highlight all of the inconsistencies and prove this officer wrong. His friends stop calling him because all he can talk about, all he can think about is how to right this wrong to bring justice on this injustice. And he becomes obsessed about taking the law into his own hands. Well, this might, this might seem like an extreme example, but, but all of us on some level has experienced some form of injustice in our lives. Maybe it was in your family. Did you have a tyrant parent who you never could please no matter how much you tried? Did you have an unstable father who would just rage without any warning? Did you have an abusive spouse who would lash out and then make you feel like it was your fault? What about a deceptive aunt or uncle 
who did horrible things to you and said, you know what, if you ever tell anyone, no one's going to believe you. Maybe the injustices were in your job. Do you ever have a boss that saw the hard work you did and then took credit for it? Or if you're the boss, did you have an employee who refused to follow your directives and would slam you in front of other coworkers? And maybe just in our world we see it. A congressman who takes bribes in order to steer the vote a certain way or get elected. A world leader who orders and enjoys the execution of a specific tribe or group of people, which includes children. There are injustices everywhere. And these are all injustices. And when we see no one doing anything to stop them, we want to be like Mike and take the law into our own hands. How do we, how do, we do this? Simply. Well, first thing we do is we start to attack the person or the agency's character or reputation by saying things like, did you hear what they did? Did, did you hear what they did? Or we might be more subtle about it. So what do you think of so-and-so? Second thing we do is we make it our mission to prove that we're right. We get on social media and make, our, make public our rightness. We ask others to take up our cause, to rally the troops, and prove that we're right. Third thing we do is we start to change the order of things. We promote ourselves from being maybe a regular citizen to being advisor to the president. Or from being the witness of a crime to, to transitioning into being the judge or the jury of a crime. Or we move from being a spouse to being a savior or an executioner. We change the order of things. And Peter is writing to a group of people who are familiar with injustice. They are people who are in some ways like the refugees we see in the news today. They have been displaced from their country, their home country. And Nero is the leader of the day. And if you know anything about Nero, he's a tyrant. Legend has it that he burned down the city of Rome and blamed it on the Christians so that he could rebuild the city the way he wanted it rebuilt. And the historian Tacitus says that Nero was playing his fiddle merrily while Rome burned. Nero would be responsible for the persecution and crucifixion of scores of Christians, feeding them to lions and using their burning bodies as torches at dinner parties. Horrible leadership and abuse of power. I realize I spent a lot of time setting us up maybe to resonate with injustice and the desire to take matters into our own hands. Because my hope is that in reading our scripture this morning, we might see the shocking directive Peter brings to his audience and to us. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor 
the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Would you pray with me? Shepherd and overseer of our souls. We come before you grateful that we have your word. Grateful that we have your word because without it, we would take things into our own hands. But would you guide us by your word this morning to see what you are calling us to do? To see how you are calling us to be subject to every human institution for your sake. Help us, Father, to do the thing that I know for me feels very counterintuitive, very countercultural. And would you use this time we have together within your word to show us our salvation and to show us the work of justice that you have done through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So I want you to think for a second about all the examples that we talked about earlier. So Mike's police officer, the tyrant father, the greedy boss, the criminal leader, Nero. And read again verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We may want to scream out in refusal. No way. We will not. Sure, when leaders or parents or structures are pure and upright, no problem. But how does Peter expect us to even dream about subjecting ourselves when the systems or the leaders are corrupt or abusive? Well, he asks us, to follow Jesus' lead. And in this passage, he highlights three ways in which Jesus was able to willingly subject himself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he gives us encouragement that we are not only able to do this, but we are required to do this. First, Jesus respects the order because he knows this world is a God-governed place. That's one way in which he does this. The other way Jesus does this is he lives in love because this is God's display of grace. And thirdly, how does Jesus do this? How does he subject himself to every human institution? He trusts his father and knows that we will all one day see his face. First, how does Jesus do this? He respects the order because he knows the world is a God-governed place. Look with me just again at verse 13. 
the passage begins by putting next to one another two phrases, the Lord's sake and every human institution. This should be a clue for us that Peter is asking us not to make the mistake of separating the two. Because where does any human institution originate from? From the Lord. The original Greek maybe gives us a little more clarity in how we translate this phrase human institution. It's basically any structure created for humans. So the structure of marriage, whose idea? God's idea. The structures of parenting and family, whose idea? God's idea. The structures of government and oversight, whose idea? God's. And so we fall into a trap when we begin to separate human institutions from God's sovereign hand. Like God is asleep at the wheel and has no idea what's happening over here. And we are called, as verse 17 commands us, to honor those in government positions. Honor the emperor. What does that mean, honor? What's well, showing a reverence and a respect for the position or the rank. And to put yourself willingly under someone's control. Romans 13, 1-2 fleshes this out a little bit more. It says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Same concept. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And verse 16 says, we are servants of God and then therefore called to serve him by respecting the servants he's put in place. And verse 18 in this passage just complicates the matters. It says, even the unjust were supposed to do good and honor. What? Even if they're crooked, the Greek word is scolios, you know, like the crooked spine. Even if they're crooked, we're still called to honor them. This is, I don't understand it. We see a picture of it when you see Jesus going before Pontius Pilate. If you remember, but he's, Pilate is trying to get him to say something that will help his cause. Come on, Jesus, I'm here to help you. If you're innocent, talk to me. Tell me what's going on. Please, I'm here. I'm in charge. Let me figure this out. And Jesus is saying nothing. But in John 19, 10 to 11, here's what it says. Pilate's getting frustrated. And he says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus recognizes the God-governed order of things. And because guess what? It's him and his father who created all these things and who holds all these things together. There's a trust that Jesus demonstrates in subjecting himself to Pilate's authority as governor. So I was wondering, what, like, what does it look like when we try to start separating out what's God's and what we think is not God's, structure-wise? And I just wanted to give you what seems like kind of a trivial example, but it stood out to me, and I thought I would share it. I, and I remember it. I was seven years old. It's, one of, it's weird. It's one of my first memories. But I remember playing <clears throat> with my cousin, 
out at his yard at my aunt's house. And my cousin and I were around the same age, so sometimes we would get along great, and other times, not so great. So my aunt was in the house getting lunch ready, and we were having one of those more difficult days, as cousins would, seven-year-old cousins would. And I remember he, he hurt me in some way. I don't remember what he did, if he kicked me, punched me, did something to me. And uh, I remember I wanted to get him back. I wanted payback. So what did I do? I gave him the most offensive and cruel response a seven-year-old has in his arsenal. I stuck my tongue out at him. I landed it good. like It was a strong one. And I was justified. Felt good taking the law into my own hands. And I turned around, and a wave of fear and sweat just ran over my body. There was my aunt standing at the back door holding lunch in her hand. She had seen the whole thing. If I had believed that she was watching, I didn't have to take tongue justice into my own hands. I could trust that she would discipline her son. I didn't have to. This was her place her home, and it was not my place or my home. I want to ask us, in what ways might we be disrespecting the order of things and taking matters into our own hands? And how might we better respect the order of creation? Maybe it's on the road. Maybe it's that person who's going 90 in a 55, or who's texting and driving, or who doesn't merge until the very end of the lane ending. Cards on the table, that is something that makes, my wife will attest to this, it makes me furious. When people drive ahead, everyone's waiting to get in, and people are driving ahead to try to squeeze in. Oh, it makes me crazy. And I take matters into my own hands. I pull over into the middle so they can't get through. Yes, yes, justice. Well, what if we trust, or even if we see maybe a drunk driver, what if we call the law enforcement? to take care of things. It's their job. I know I might get in trouble with this, but maybe it's with our current president. I have heard enough Obama bashing within Christian circles and out of my mouth sometimes. If I believe that God has put this man into his position, then I'm going to honor him as a God-appointed leader. I may not like some of his decisions, but I can honor him because of his position. Maybe it's the person who's been appointed to lead your home. Wives, how are you doing at honoring your husbands? Children, how are you doing at honoring your parents? Here's the key. They don't deserve honor or respect because they've earned it. That's what our culture would say. They deserve honor because God placed them there. That's why they deserve honor and respect. An important disclaimer. I just wanted to mention this because it might get confusing. If there's anyone within earshot who's being abused at the hands of someone called to lead your family, what I would ask you to do is entrust the church or the legal authorities to do what God has called them to do in protecting you and protecting your family. You're actually honoring your spouse by doing this instead of taking matters into your own hands. 
Because when we take matters into our own hands, we're not stealing the power that belongs to that person in charge of us. We're actually undermining the power that belongs to God who's put everything in charge. And I want you to test this this week. Notice what happens to your own heart when you begin to honor and respect those leaders or institutions with whom you struggle. Refrain from attacking their character or their reputation. Hold your tongue about your opinion on how they're doing things. See if your heart hardens or softens. And not only can we see Jesus subjecting himself to this authority because he knows this is a God-governed place. Jesus also does another thing. He loves those around him because he knew his love was a display of God's grace. And he loved those around him who are often treating him horribly. A couple things happen to us when our response is like that of Jesus, when our response is that of love. First thing happens is we put to silence the, fool, the ignorance of foolish people, and that you'll find that in verse 15. Second thing that happens is we receive the grace of God. First, when we display God's grace through loving, we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What, what is Peter meaning by verse 15? For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He's saying that in living a life of love for one another, anyone who has a false charge against you or hates you is proven wrong by your actions. Maybe not in the moment, maybe not next year, but as chapter one of first Peter tells us, they will see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Love is not in vain, friends. It has the power to silence the accusations of your enemies. And it has the power for your enemy to see the glory of God on display in you. Secondly, we receive the grace of God when we love. Look at verses 18 to 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is a gracious thing. What that means in this context is God's favor, or easier understood maybe is God's smile is upon you. The example of my cousin, if, if in if offending me, I might have chosen to confront him lovingly or give him the benefit of the doubt that he's having a bad day or just kept quiet and didn't seek revenge, I'm guessing my aunt's face would have looked much differently. God the Father smiles upon Jesus, and he smiled upon Jesus through his entire life and death. And he summarized it by saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. We have been given that status because of Jesus. And it's that smile that allows us to treat the unjust with goodness and kindness and care. And it's when we respond in that fashion that God's smile continues to rain upon us, like God saying, that's my boy, or at a girl. 
Peter prepares us that loving the unjust master or the manipulative boss or the unruly father, it's not all rainbows and roses when we do that. He warns us that we will suffer, but it is in our enduring the suffering that God's grace gives us strength to continue on, to turn the other cheek, to offer the jacket when our first one is stolen, to go the second mile when the first one was really, really hard. Because that's what Jesus did. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet still sinners, while we were yet still enemies of God, Christ died for us. While we were treating Jesus with the harshest of responses, spitting, cursing, whipping, hating, rejecting, his arms were wide open with a posture of love. Oh, how God smiles at that grace. Ernest Gordon tells a story. He's a World War II vet. Tells a story about being released from a prisoner of war camp in Japan. And I'm just going to read some of the things that he, he talks about happening. We found ourselves on the same track with several carloads of Japanese wounded after we were freed from the Kwai prison camp. These unfortunates were on their own without medical care. These Japanese soldiers were no longer fit for action in Burma. They had been packed into railway cars, which were being returned to Bangkok. And they were in a shocking state. I have never seen men filthier. Uniforms were encrusted with blood, mud, and excrement. Their wounds, sorely inflamed and full of pus, crawled with maggots. It was apparent why the Japanese were so cruel to us. If they didn't care for their own, why should they care for us? The wounded looked at us sadly as they sat with their heads resting against the train carriages, waiting for death. They had been discarded as expendable, the garbage of war. These were the enemy. They were more defeated than we had ever been. And without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out part of their ration and a rag or two, and with water canteens in their hands, went over to the Japanese train. Our guards tried to prevent us, saying, no way, no way, don't touch, don't touch. But we ignored them and knelt down by the enemy to give water and food to clean and bind up their wounds. And as we walked away, grateful cries of arigato, which means thank you, followed us when we left. I looked at my comrades with disbelief. 18 months ago, we would have joined readily in the destruction of our captors had they fallen into our hands. Now, these same officers were dressing the enemy's wounds. We had experienced a moment of grace there in those blood-stained railway cars. God had broken through the barriers of our prejudice and had given us the will to obey his command, thou shalt love. Who is the enemy, friends, in our lives that needs an experience of God's grace? What person, what authority in some way or another could enter this room right now and prompt you to walk out in anger for how they've treated you? Remember the grace you've been shown and extend to them the same. Martin Luther King says, hate multiplies hate. But love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. For it has creative 
and redemptive power. So Jesus shows us this subjecting himself to authority by respecting God's governed place. And he shows us that he can demonstrate God's grace through love. And finally, we can rest in the truth that we'll all see God's face, all of us. A final thought about what does it mean to subject oneself to a human institution? And you might be asking, you know what, Chad, does that mean that we just allow governments or authorities just to walk all over us? My first inclination is to say a full stop. No, 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 no. I want to tell you that boundaries are the way to go. That if there's a broken human institution, you should protect yourself from it. I want to say that if a leader were to come after you, even though you were innocent, you should defend yourself to the death. That's what I want to say. But I might be making some enemies in this statement. I don't think that's what the Bible calls believers to. Daniel was thrown into a den of hungry lions because of a broken government system that he honored. He did not bow down, but he still took their punishment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a thousand-degree oven for refusing to bow down to a king. But they still respected the authority and didn't go to the death with their rights. Joseph sold into slavery by his eldest brothers and then thrown into prison by a boss for a crime he didn't commit. John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. Stephen was stoned by the religious corrupt authority. And Peter, the writer of this very letter, was crucified by the authority he's asking the readers to honor. Let me be clear. Subjecting ourselves to human institution, it's not passive like we just lay down and die. It's an act of the will. No one can force you to submit or subject yourself. You must make that decision voluntarily and willingly. And this also doesn't mean that if you see an injustice done to someone else, we should intervene within the laws God has given us when we see an injustice to somebody else. But our tendency, like I talked about at the beginning, is to defend ourselves and our own rights but I don't know that I see that in the Bible. If you do, please tell me. I, I want to see it if it's there. I want to see it. What does Jesus do instead when facing Pilate's investigation, when facing the corrupt religious leaders of the day, when they cry out, crucify him? What does he do? Well, it tells us. While he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was being abused, did you hear him say, you are all a bunch of idiots. Don't you know who I am, you big jerks? When he suffered upon the tree, did you see him say or did you hear him say, oh, I will get you back for what you're doing here? No. Instead, he did the most powerful and the most difficult thing a person can do in situations like these. Verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I didn't realize I was going to have the privilege of preaching on it. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because it's so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. 
But it's such a beautiful picture of submission to the Lord. Jesus places himself and places justice into the hands of his father, knowing, knowing that justice will be served. Jesus knows that each one of us, all of us, will stand before our maker in a final judgment. And Jesus finds complete comfort, rest, security, assurance that God is a just judge who will take every single wrongful action and sin that's either been done to us or that we've done against God. And he will deliver a verdict with an eternal sentence. And Jesus knows what those two verdicts look like. Life with God or life apart from God. And the second alternative, life apart from God, it's horrific. If we really understood hell in its true reality, we wouldn't wish it on our worst enemy. It's like seeing those soldiers in the train car. That's how we would see hell. And that's why Peter ends this passage in verses 24 and 25, reminding his brothers and sisters of the deliverance that's been granted them. Our hell became his hell. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Our deserved death penalty became his. We were lost, but thanks be to God, have been found and returned to the shepherd father and overseeing brother of our soul. If you, friends, have been shown such mercy in the face of your sin, you will be able to withstand anyone else's sin against you entrusting them to God's justice and praying that your silent response would lead them to his mercy. This is a posture of living in the fear of God, not in the fear of man. God is the only person in heaven and on earth who should prompt fear in us. That's why he says, fear God and honor the emperor. Fear is the only rightful response to God alone. And by fear, I mean ultimate respect. Because he is the supreme judge. He is the supreme king. He is the su supreme justice. He is the name above every other name. Just a few months ago, after a horrific church shooting that killed nine in Charleston, South Carolina, the victim spoke to Dylan Storm Roof at his bond hearing. And I want you to, I'm just going to read some of their words, and I want you to listen for evidence of 1 Peter 2.23 here in real time. Nadine Collier, daughter of victim Ethel Lance, says, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And I pray that God would have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But if God forgives you, I forgive you. Relative of Myra Thompson says, I would just like you to know that, to say the same thing that was just said, I forgive you and my family forgives you. But we would like to take, we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most Christ so that he can change you and change your ways so that no matter what happens to you, you'll be okay. Lastly, Wanda Simmons, granddaughter of Daniel Simmons. Although my grandfather 
and the other victims died at the hands of hate. All of this is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul is proof that my relatives lived in love and their legacies will live in love. Hate won't win. What situations are we tempted to take the law into our own hands? Who are you serving justice to? Or who are you giving the penalty to instead of entrusting them to the judge? Let us entrust ourselves to this God, knowing that by faith in Jesus Christ, we do not need to fear God's judgment because Christ has taken away our guilty sentence. We can respond instead with a fear of God that leads to awe and worship. So as we face injustice, we can look to Christ, who though he was innocent, did not open his mouth, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. You remember Mike, the guy I talked about at the beginning? Well, he became obsessed and convinced again over the injustice being caused by him by being hit by a drunk driver and then required to pay for the drunk driver's car. He said everything changed in a conversation he had with his girlfriend, the one who was insisting that they get married. They're sitting at dinner, and Mike is drawing on a napkin, once again, the scene of the accident, as his girlfriend attempts to have a conversation with him. And he's just replaying it over and over again, replaying the injustice, not even listening to her. And she gets his attention. She says, Mike, look at me. And she says calmly and firmly, Mike, you are right. You are right. This is not fair. But this obsession to take the law into your own hands. It's only hurting you. Mike, I'm just glad that you are alive. And in that moment, he believed her and he gave up on the idea of needing to be right. And they were married a few months later. Friends, let's remember we're alive. We have been given new life in Christ who unfairly took our sin upon himself. Let's give up our need to be right and entrust ourselves to him by honoring his created order, by displaying his grace through our love. And we can trust, we can trust, friends, that every sin and every sinner will stand before the face of God. Let's remember the grace that we will receive in that moment. And I pray that standing next to us might be our enemies, might be our Neros, our abusers, our drunk drivers, our corrupt leaders who saw our good deeds and in those deeds saw the mercy and grace of Christ. May our enemies become our brothers and sisters by the grace of God on display in each one of us. Let's pray. Father God, you know that I love this verse because it's been through hardship and experiencing it that I love it. I didn't love suffering. I didn't love going through difficult times with difficult leaders. But entrusting 
ourselves to the one who judges justly, brings peace, and brings rest to our souls. I pray, Father, that if there are people, if there are institutions that we are obsessed about and need to be right about, Father, that you would help us to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Thank you for taking our just punishment upon yourself. And we pray, Father, that you would enable us to do this and respond this way because of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.